Welcome to Navigating the Future, One Decision at a Time. I'm your host, Alex DeBrain, and in this series I'll be sharing a chapter per episode of my memoir, Escaping the Amazon, for those that would prefer to listen to it instead of reading it. Hopefully some of the decisions I made through my journey can help some of you navigate the chaos we call life. Subscribe to my podcast, follow me on Twitter at AlexTheBrain1, or subscribe to my mailing list on AlexTheBrain.com to stay up to date as I release each episode. Any comments or feedback is always welcomed and encouraged, so please drop me a mail on info at alexthebrain.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hippo, Dijonet, you are a volunteer serving France faithfully and with honor. Caught in the notorious doldrums, we floated helplessly in the Atlantic, the blue Amazon near the equator, and it had been a week since we had a mere puff of wind for the raggedy sails of our damaged and leaking boat. How did I get myself into this? Three men were about to die of thirst, and it was my fault. Was the only unforgivable sin stupidity or hubris? Pride comes before the fall, they say. I felt the piercing sun dry the water right out of my skin as if life was being slowly peeled from my helpless body. This was one of the most painful ways to go, especially with so much water around us. But if I drank the seawater, I'd end up pissing out more than I consumed to rid my corpse of the excess salt. But what if I sipped small amounts? I resisted the temptation and lay stoically on the hard deck on scorching planks that broiled me from below. Above us were the vapour trails of airliners en route from Rio de Janeiro to Miami. Save us! My mind screamed, yet I could barely twitch a muscle. There was a sudden break in the sun's relentless radiance, which prompted me again to peel my encrusted eyelids from each other. A bird was circling us in wide berths, its intimidating wingspan casting a shadow. It was waiting for the sun to finish us off. This is it. We won't end up as fish food. But bird shit. It's a brown booby, said Connor, our Australian wunderkit at the helm. They're harmless. Their presence means that land might be close by. Vultures don't make it out this far. How the hell do you know that? He didn't answer. I chalked it up to his mysterious and angelic wisdom. The bird was disinterested in our agony, but simply hovered over us like a watchman. Connor was plopped at the cockpit with his legs up one arm on the wheel and the other holding a dog-eared paperback, The Kite Runner, which he'd been reading to Vasil, a young Romanian, and me the entire morning. It may be unfair, but what happens in a few days, sometimes even a single day, can change the course of a whole lifetime. Such asides kept our minds away from death, which was crawling closer by the hour. Connor, I can't take the thirst much longer. Pass me a bottle of water. I asked as sticky white saliva formed strings between my cracked lips. We've only got a litre of fresh water left among us three, he cautioned. I became paranoid that Vasil would drink all of it while Connor and I slept, and blame me for the crime. Desire could turn any man into an animal. But then Connor chucked a bottle at me. I was joking. Enjoy a good swig of mine. I'm not thirsty. I knew he was lying. He always sacrificed himself for others. But I wasn't about to let him die for my depraved soul. When do we drink our own piss? I asked boyishly. Should we start saving it just in case? Stop thinking about that, Connor muttered. Then I picked up a container and relieved my bladder of vicious urine, which had the colour, smell and consistency of motor oil. 
A seal was lying below deck, the only shaded area on the boat to escape the blazing sun. We could roast out on the deck or sweat our last drops of water and suffocate in the hold. Our 40-foot sloop had seen better days, perhaps when French Guiana gained independence. We'd be dogging the hell out of the vessel for weeks, but we loved her despite her bruises and stitches. The hull was sleek and slender, but had long ago turned brown from neglect. Below deck were frayed wires and broken instruments scattered about. We had to take it or leave it if we wanted to get the hell out of Perimaribo after I'd been freed from jail. You expect us to pay top dollar for a leaking, gutted styrofoam cup with a rotting sail? Connor protested to the local fisherman, but we had no other option. Well then, we'll take it. In a mad rush to come and save us from Paramaribo, Connor ran squarely into a shoal, taking on a lot of water. He barely avoided scuttling the vessel, but the flooding left it without any usable instrumentation. Further to that, on our first attempt to leave Paramaribo Harbour, a rope tangled around the spinning propeller and the packing clamp snapped. All that now held it together and kept the boat from being swallowed by the Atlantic were two vice grips and four cable ties. For good measure, Vasil added his used chewing gum as a backup patch. Vasil opened his eyes as I stepped down into the cockpit. Which way are we heading? he asked. Still northwest, I responded. The lesion meticulously taught us to navigate according to the sun, stars or landmarks, but those skills were useless if we couldn't control our direction. With the power train in ruins, we were entirely at the mercy of the Guyani current, which was pushing us into the Caribbean, the wrong trajectory. I avoided sitting at all costs to avoid the horrible spins and vertigo, but my emaciated legs eventually gave out. As I sat down, I immediately swung my body around, gripped onto the stern rail and started retching. Every muscle in me clenched and my stomach contracted like a bagpipe. A week of seasickness left me with very little in my body to eject. We'd gone through our provisions but didn't need much food in any way, for it only brought in thirst. We'd die from a variety of ailments before we starved. I'd gone days without a single calorie during the Legion's renowned advanced jungle warfare course. During the last days, we were allowed the delicate treat of fat white tree grubs. Finally, some yellow bile and blood made its way up, and our projectile vomited into the ocean, reminiscent of the exorcist. My throat burned from the acid, my eyes watering and sweat ran from my forehead to my nose. I sat and simply stared into the water. Make it go away, I pleaded to whatever higher power was listening. I then felt an indescribable peace when the heaving stopped. But as I gazed into the water, I noticed three great whites appear from the depth. You bastards smelled my blood and bile, huh? The largest one darted directly towards me, staring deep into my bloodshot eyes. His dorsal fin broke the water and gazed against the hull as he joined the other two. I looked again and saw that the shark had a thick smile on his face. Get over it, jump in, nobody will miss you. He mouthed at me. Hey, wait, I said, snapping out of a trance. You're not really a shark. I won't fall prey to your snares. Wicked one, get behind. Hey, are you fucking hallucinating again? I heard Connor's voice crack above my head as he peered over the stern rail to see what nonsense I was blubbering about. I stared up at him, and when I looked back, there was nothing but crisp, clear water. I was slowly losing my mind. Hey, mate, I don't know much longer it'll be, he continued. But you need to get your head straight. Basile is losing it too. I need you to be strong. If I lose you, then I'll lose him. 
Connor then returned to the cockpit to continue reading to us where he left off. I had considered studying law before entering university. One required reading was the 19th century English case of R. v. Dudley and Stevens, which established a precedent that necessity is not a defence for murder. Dudley and Stevens were shipwrecked along with two other men, facing certain death. They conspired to kill the young cabin boy for food. In a bizarre twist, the survivors were rescued very shortly after, making the killing pointless. After a highly publicised trial, the defendants were convicted of murder and sentenced to death, but with the recommendation of clemency. My worries didn't play with civil law. I wasn't sure if God would forgive murder or cannibalism, even in the extenuating circumstances. I'd rather die with an untainted soul. But would letting myself starve when there was an edible corpse available not be tantamount to suicide? Christ wandered in the wilderness and was tempted with food and drink. Elijah also suffered in the desert, but angels presented him with a meal that allowed him to survive for 40 days and 40 nights. Was Connor one of those cherubs? When the heat broke and the sun rested for the evening, Connor cheerfully stripped naked and jumped into the ocean for his daily shower. Where he got the energy from was anybody's guess. Number four of the Legion's Code Honor. Appearances must always be impeccable, you smelly bastards. But sometimes, Gallo's humor was exactly what we needed. Hey, we won't eat you, Connor shouted at me. You've been gorging down with nothing but curry for the past month. You'll taste too gamey. Basile laughed, rubbed his hands as if he was sitting before a buffet and smirked. I hunt wild boar in Romania. I like the gamey taste. How about you wanker share my big balls after I'm gone? Only one per person. Actually, Connor, you're as heavy as both of us. You're a better two-for-one value. We would go for months on your lean carcass. After the gore-fours, I got up from the stern and sat at the cockpit. The first shift would be mine while the lads got some shut-eye. As the sun set, I sat back and let my eyes wander above the heavens. Millions of stars were scattered across the black canvas of the universe. Suddenly I heard a distinct laughter in the distance, something like a child running through the darkness, playing hide-and-seek. I jumped up to see what was there and to scan the horizon for something to convince me that I wasn't hallucinating again. The sound became a swooshing hum right beside the boat. I looked down and saw a long fluorescent streak through the water. They started on the sides of the hull, scooped under the boat and emerged on the other side. It was beautiful as if the northern lights had dove into the Atlantic and presented themselves as a ray of hope. While I watched the ocean dance before me, I noticed that it was from a pot of dolphins breaking the water, displaying their brief but comforting bioluminescence. Rest now, Basile announced as he emerged from below deck to take his turn. A legion discipline that had stuck with us was making sure that someone always remained on watch. I then lay next to the mast on deck. I couldn't go below as that was the quickest way to aggravate my seasickness. But just as I fell into blissful sleep, I suddenly felt my stomach heaving and a blood rushing to my head. There was no time to gain my bearings. I simply rolled over to the side and let my guts vomit on deck. You better wash that off, Connor shouted in his slumber. My eyelids dropped and my mind finally rested. When I woke, the sun was already high in the sky, burning me to a crisp. My anguish continued. I wiped the remainder of the bile from the corners of my mouth and felt my cracked lips grate against my hand. Still no wind? I pleaded as I tried to remember how many days had passed since the blur of pain had begun. Nothing. 
Basile replied from the bar. I turned to him standing with his feet locked into the bar rail, his hands stretched out to the heavens in a Jesus pose. If there is a God, show yourself. Bring back the storms. I'd rather take your fury than your calmness. We're not scared, he shouted at the sea. Screw you, bring it on. He sobered up moments later. I spent my childhood herding cattle in Transylvania, where winters would get lower than negative 20 degrees Celsius. I never thought I'd die under the cruel sun in the middle of the Atlantic. Connor deserves to live, I put in desperately. He had a swimming career. He'll produce tall, beautiful Australian children. Humanity needs him. Me? I'm a bad with women, I'm a failed business here, and I'm a shitty rugby player. And now I'm a scrawny, sickly excuse of a man. Life had been good, but I had to have the stupid idea that I could make my family proud by joining this godforsaken legion. They'll think I died heroically in the jungle, rather than as a cowardly desert on some cursed boat. I wish I could take it all back. Both of you get your heads out of your asses, Connor snapped. We're going to make it. My lot wasn't meant to end like this. One's life flashes before one just before death. I stared at the sky as the clouds gathered and retraced the faithful steps that got me to where I was at that moment. I reminisced about the good old days in my beloved Johannesburg. And just then, I felt a rain droplet hit my forehead. I remember the first rugby match I watched with my stepfather, Pa. I sat calmly on his lap during the 1995 Rugby World Cup in my hometown. The competing Pugilets were our very own Springboks and the New Zealand's infamous All Blacks. My biological father never had the opportunity to take me to an international rugby match, for he died during apartheid while South Africa was banned. My homeland was finally reintroduced into international sporting events after the fall of the White Rule in 1991. This World Cup was South Africa's chance to prove that it could change for the better and still be the best. Being the underdogs, the Springboks started the match mainly on the defensive. Due to the strength of the flankers and the heart of the scrum-off, the All Blacks couldn't break their line. All subsequent points were scored by kicks, with the eventual armistice at an even 9-9 at the final whistle. Overtime, Pa whispered in my ear as the throngs roared. I could feel the collective passion as he initiated me into manhood. It goes to show, Pa said cheerfully, it's never too late to redeem oneself. Early into overtime, New Zealand took the lead by slotting a long-range penalty leaving South Africa expecting the worst. Time passed slowly, but at the last moment the Springboks even the score to 12 all. With minutes to go, the Springboks got a scrum 30 metres from the All Blacks try line. Breaking it was impossible, so they hung back and waited for the perfect moment to strike. The ball was fed to the scrum and passed to the flyer who was now comfortably in the pocket lining up the goal. A mere second later, he dropped the ball to his foot. Defenders desperately drove to try to block the kick but failed. As the ball floated in slow motion through the uprights, Pa lifted me high in the air. The earth shook as 43 million of my countrymen jumped in unison as the underrated Springboks dethroned the mighty All Blacks. I was too young to remember the horrors of apartheid, but that victory went beyond mere international sportsmanship. This match would later be the focus of the film Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. As Pa hugged me tightly against his chest, I knew that this was a new time, a new country, and this was our game. I wish your dad could be with us today, he said sincerely, respecting my biological father and the bond we were building in his absence. I never forgot that day, that amazing feeling, or the love I had for my new rock. 
Rugby became my world, the oxygen every young Afrikaner boy breathed. My bedroom walls were covered with photos of the best players. I had no brothers and spent hours by myself in our garden, passing the ball into thin air, running to pick it up and pass it back again and again. I rushed down the greenery, faking out the wings on the outfield, and dove victoriously over the line, imagining the All Blacks behind me in hot pursuit. A tree's branch became my imaginary crossbow, and I kicked the ball for hours on end until I got a shot over. Generally, my aim was poor, so I always played positions on the pitch that didn't involve kicking. But speed was the most important quality in sport, and I had plenty of it to spare. My first game was playing for the Branson Larchkels under 9 team as a 7-year-old. In the earlier years of South African rugby, the first three grades were bunched together into one team. Bettering the older kids was the only way the youngsters could earn their stripes. I was small for my age, so I leveraged my quickness and agility at every opportunity. Traditionally, on Saturday mornings, we played barefoot, no matter the weather. In the winter, our toes quickly became numb, and any touch shot sharp stings through our bodies. I learned to regulate corporal pain from an early age. Later in life, I understood the adage, rugby is a hooligan's game played by gentlemen. Competing gave me the greatest high. Why do you need drugs when you have rugby? My goal in life was to play for my own country, to proudly call myself a springbok. I was no different from any privileged white youth growing up in post-apartheid South Africa. I didn't recognize skin color or political affiliation. Any springbok was a god and I wanted that glory. I threw my life at the stream, trained relentlessly and pushed myself beyond the breaking point. And then, sure enough, I broke. Literally. And all my dreams vanished before my eyes. My ligaments snapped and a knee gave out during the 2007 season. I was playing a local club derby match against our arch rivals. I was on the cross defence chasing down the opposition's fullback. We were both running at full speed, ears back, heads low. As the distance closed, I knew this wouldn't end well, but I couldn't back down. We collided with a sickening thump which stopped us both dead in our tracks. The crowd let out a sigh and averted their gaze at the train wreck. The sudden halt in momentum ripped the ball from the fullback's hands. I felt a sudden pain in my knee, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly where it came from. I saw stars, but I was young and regained my bearings quickly. Well done, Alex. You saved us a try there, our captain said as he patted me on the back. But the next scrum finished me off. The eighth man picked up the ball from the base of the scrum and broke to the blind side, running straight at me. I bent my knees as I shot low towards him to take out his legs. We hit. However, my left knee disagreed with my momentum. I collapsed on the ground as it painfully dislocated. The sick sound of ligaments ripping was that of whips cracking on a ranch. We lost the game and my season was over in an instant. I underwent surgery to replace my ACL and I have the loose bits of cartilage scraped out. I followed up with extensive rehabilitation for a year. And despite my doctor's prognosis, I was hellbent on getting back onto the pitch. The waiting period was the hardest. I followed my therapist's orders with military precision and in the process got back into fighting shape. My knee was as strong as ever and I was ready. I eased back into the rugby in a friendly match. My opposing centre broke the line and came sprinting towards me. He stepped to the right and I dove after him. I manhandled his jersey and held on for dear life. I wasn't about to let him get away. As I brought him down I heard a snap and a sudden sharp pain shot through my wrist. I immediately knew something was wrong. But in true fashion, I brushed off the injury, taped up my wrist and finished the game as if nothing had happened. But it was clear that I had torn those ligaments and I would need surgery again. 
My body was showing the accumulated damage and it never completely healed to 100%. With one injury following another, I had to retire. Life felt unfair as I was always told that hard work would pay off and that anything was possible. It was now all a big lie. I would never compete in rugby again. I was the third child and only son of a successful businessman. My siblings and I were the wellspring of his pride and satisfaction. But dad was unexpectedly diagnosed with colon cancer and passed away a mere three months after his diagnosis, days before my fourth birthday. The most vivid childhood memory was of him lining up his brood of kids every morning before work. He was in polished shoes, a pressed suit and a crisp hat and made us say in unison that the brains vow to always do their best. That was the most uplifting part of my day, but then the morning came when he was no longer at the kitchen table waiting for us. I was too young to comprehend the loss of a parent, but his loving discipline stayed with me forever and I continued to seek it in other ways. After his death, the mixed family Brady Bunch years began. Mother eventually remarried a successful radiologist who had three daughters from his first marriage. His wife had unfortunately also passed from cancer. Though I experienced heartbreak early on, I was now settled into a loving family. I felt a great responsibility being the only boy in the mix and as such leaned heavily on Pa, who I now loved as much as my late father. Though my siblings had different surnames, we were all one undivided clan. Mother and Pa provided us with a comfortable upper middle class existence. They both encouraged me to think big and free. No dream was absurd and my mind lit up with the thoughts of what life had in store. I took solace knowing that I had my parents' unconditional love, win or lose. Pa always footed the bill for my many missteps, but never complained. Of course, you're our boy, was always his doting response. He did often wish me to fail somewhat, but only as a means of learning the hard way and getting back in the saddle. Since speed and jumping ability go in hand in hand, one day in primary school I decided to try my favourite Olympic event, the long jump. During a practice season, students leaped from the improvised base of a disused pit as there was no board. When it was my turn, I came hurtling down the stretch at full speed, my legs scrambling in a blur. My timing was perfect and I launched myself into the heavens. As I was bringing my legs to the front of my body to land, I saw the entire pit pass beneath me, like the end of a runway after a plane takes off. I braced for a hard landing. I crashed on the unyielding compacted grass with full force but miraculously didn't break a bone. I felt nothing but jubilation at my feet. My coach's face was expressionless for he couldn't believe what had just happened. I was told to never do that again. My athletics career blossomed and I competed against the best athletes in the region. We all pushed each other to excel but fate dealt me with another cruel blow. Just before high school I severely injured my Achilles tendon. It took about another year to heal and I never regained my springing ability. One of my teammates was a natural born athlete who managed to avoid a major injury and we both made a pact to compete for South Africa. Only he kept up his side of the promise and in 2008 I watched Robert Wistays and compete in Beijing. Next, after watching one too many X Game video clips, I turned to motocross. I got the, of course, you're our boy, thumbs up and went off into the bush to find dirt ramps to practice on. In short, I ended up in the hospital with 56 stitches down my side, 25 down my leg and a day of amnesia. When I finally came home, mother made my motorbikes mysteriously vanish. But like a silicone investor, I didn't fear one failed venture after another because I knew 
Eventually, I would hit pay dirt. As the years passed, I warmed to the idea of upholding my family name and heritage. I had to fill the shoes of both a successful businessman and a distinguished doctor. Thus far, every goal that I had started ended up with me in hospital. I was blessed, or cursed, at simply being pretty good at a lot of things, but exceptional at none. I appreciated how fortunate I was to be growing up in a prosperous family in what was still a developing country. I needed to give back to society and wondered how I would make my deceased and living father proud. In 2009, I was at last wrapping up my studies at the prestigious Stellenbosch University getting an honours degree in management accounting. My family was happy that I had left my wild days behind and to focus on the books. It seemed that I was finally tamed. One day after lectures, I loosened my laces and lay on my dormitory bed, staring vacantly at the ceiling as the room slowly closed in on me. From the second floor, I could hear my mates playing touch rugby outside on the grass. My very first existential crisis was triggered by a visiting professor from a neighbouring university who was also a Marxist. In his lecture, The Problem with Rich Kids, he asserted that children with wealthy parents have a tougher time defining themselves and quantifying what they'll amount to, for there is an unrealistic pressure to succeed. He went on to explain that those kids tended to value personal success more than civility or benevolence. When their achievements did not amount to what they or their parents expected, it resulted in deep anxiety and depression, which in turn reinforced the lack of empathy and decency. I was about to receive a world-class degree that my parents had paid for, one that I secretly didn't give a shit about. I wallowed in ungrateful self-pity of my genteel future life as an accountant. I wasn't ready to be normal, nor did I fancy polo or cucumber sandwiches. I wanted to blaze my own radical and extreme path. Four course dinner or campfire, I would have the most fascinating story to tell. I dragged myself out of bed one morning and walked over a minefield of dirty clothes, books and empty takeout containers. I opened the window and looked out over the residence muddy rugby pitch. The June air was crisp and for the first time in a week the rain had ceased. Feeling nostalgic, I watched the game play out and then spotted Julie crossing the street from the student centre. Little did I know she was a covert French Foreign Legion recruitment officer. She didn't know it either. Julie was petite with curly blonde hair and often wore blue jeans with a white bomber jacket and a furry hoodie. She held her head up high and walked with purpose. Her toothy smile was radiant and could light up a stadium. We took several of the same courses and only after a long courtship did I have the nerve to ask her out. But there was a queue of past and aspiring male friends in her life. I locked her in, well at least on paper, but I never felt that she fully gave herself to me. Doubt is a bothersome little worm, especially when I treated her with so much consideration. You don't need to change a thing, she always assured me, as if my doubt had a distinct scent. But one evening, she mentioned that a distant former boyfriend had left to play rugby for a club in France. I forcibly rationalised this as good news, until the other shoe dropped. She confessed that she was also going there to visit him. I politely ended the conversation by saying, Julie, don't get on that plane. But all the tears she cried didn't keep her from doing exactly that. I was humiliated and felt less of a man. I was unable to play the sport that I loved and lost the girl to a rugby player with a real career. If I hadn't had blown my knee out, would I have Julie around my arm? How could I win her back? 
Weeks later, after a night of drinking, I heard somebody pounding on my door. I opened it and came face to face with Julie. She wanted desperately to have me back. Her remorse and contrition almost moved me to tears. I shouldn't have gone to France, she pleaded. I ran my fingers lightly through her hair, smiled warmly and cleared my throat. But it's too late. Get your big girl pants on, harden the fuck up and leave. We always hurt the ones we love most. As soon as she left, I broke down like a baby. No, you, Alex, harden the fuck up, I said to the mirror as I slapped my face. The De Brains vow to do their best. You don't need anyone. Prove it to the world. The next morning, I washed the salty tears from my cheeks and ventured downstairs and outside to join my mates Yanni and Benno in their bright grilling area. Alex, where have you been, bro? The fire's almost ready for you to cook our meat, Benno shouted from a camping chair, beer in hand. I thought you ladies would have done all the brying by now, I said, forcing myself to lighten up. Yanni got up gingerly to give me a warm handshake. Good to see you, Al. Shouldn't you be preparing for your final exams? In a few months' time, I may never see your Sariax again. i got to live for the moment. The truth was that I no longer cared whether I passed or failed. Hey, where'd Benno go? He's taking a leak, said Yanni, nodding towards the bushes. Dude, I exclaimed. The calls will be called by the time you finish putting on your makeup. Benno, a burly athlete, casually flicked an empty beer can, hitting me squarely on the forehead. We had a good laugh out of it, and I slowly felt like myself again. We cracked open some lagers, watched our brewers cook, and talked rubbish until the conversation turned to our plans after graduation. I told my dad that I wanted to be a lifelong student, Benno said, trying to fool us into thinking he was a serious academic. Yanni smiled and shook his head. Benno was an exceptional rugby player who was already in talks with a provincial club. I was happy for him as he deserved every bit of success, and yet I couldn't suppress the deadly sin of envy. Alex, what are your plans? Yanni asked, breaking my train of thought. He looked at me intently and with sincerity. He was a few years our junior, but we took him under our wings. I admired his cool and quiet confidence. Growing up with sisters and having lost my father, I longed for a companionship of a brother. Yanni became that one I never had. Yeah, I responded nervously, fishing for a good answer. You know, Pa has a few of business ventures. I'm sure he'll put me in charge of something. Looks like it's the French Foreign Legion for you, Yanni retorted with an impish smile. That's the only option for a curious guy with balls like you. The French what? Benno interrupted as he bit into the pork chop skewered on his fork. Don't you remember that Sinatra's old song? Au revoir, chérie, it's the French Foreign Legion for me. So the frogs put all the pissed off men of the world into an army to battle Arabs in the Sahara? I asked. Yeah, what better way to rid Paris of pesky foreigners than to use them to fight wars without endangering actual Frenchies? It's the oldest trick in the book? Benno mumbled with a mouthful. Like that old Gary Cooper movie, Boat Jest. To protect their family's honour, the three English oaks, brothers, took the blame for a stolen diamond. They fuck off to the French Foreign Legion and in Algeria are given a new name, a new life and a new start. Only one ever made it back alive. My uncle was a Salut Scout volunteer, Yanni added. He did some awful things in Rhodesia. That part of Africa was a very different place in the 70s. At least you were born a few decades too late, but you could probably join the British Army. Unlike the South African forces today, they're still fighting parts of the world. Our countrymen were slaughtered by the Brits in the Boer War. 
Fuck the Queen's army. If there's a country that keeps order in Africa, it's France. I like how you think, Alex, continued Yanni, who knew me as a brother and could read my mind. You want experiences and venture with material possessions. You guys know anybody who joined the Legion? I asked. Yeah, man, Yanni said. My cousin had a friend whose dad enlisted just before he was born. Bloke never talks about it, though. Did he finish? I heard he barely lasted two months of training. It's that tough. Then again, nobody has ever met someone who's actually served. And there's a lot of bullshitters. I don't even know if they take South Africans. But you could try. Sounds romantic, but no thanks. I've got nothing to run away from, I said defensively. My family worked to give me what I have. I've got lots that I should be running towards. Benno stared at Yanni and burst out laughing. Relax, we're just joking about the French Legion. You wouldn't last a day. You march to the beat of your own drum. The only contract you're signing is with Ernest and Young. Your five-year commitment will be marrying a hot off councilman and starting a family. Yanni was a bit more somber. Alex, my big brother, I have a few more years here, but wherever you end up, know that I'm pulling for you. Don't forget about me. Over the next few weeks and between exams, curiosity got the better of me and I researched the Legion more intimately. I was fascinated by the idea of sacrificing one's life for another country. What son would die for those who didn't believe in what he was doing? Recruits pledged allegiance not to the foreign state, but to the Legion itself. A French passport awaited those who survived the first five-year contract. Aside from being a haven for men who had given up on life, it was also the most highly trained army in the world. On a moment's notice, they were deployed to the nastiest parts of the globe. The Legion marched for days on end and was expendable. It consisted of the world's best prize servicemen and only accepted 10% of applicants, and women were barred. Founded by the Royal Decree in 1831 and headquartered in Algeria until the 1960s, the Legion was solely used to protect and expand the French colonial empire. Though initially banned from stepping foot in Europe, the Legion participated in every French major operation from the Carlist Wars in Spain to both world wars. The Cinco de Mayo celebration in North America commemorates Mexico finally kicking the Florian Legion out of Puebla. It made up the primary contingent of French forces fighting and dying in Indochina before Americans took over. The Legion's most recognisable white headdress, the Kepi Blanc, embodied this horror's origin. Olive Kepi's covers that were originally issued to Nurekut were eventually bleached by the sun, demarcating one as an old hand. In modern times, the Legion fought in the Persian Gulf and sent units to Afghanistan. It ultimately evolved into a rapid deployment force to preserve unsavoury French interests in the deepest reaches of Africa, from Chad to Congo to Djibouti. Outside the purview of international law, the Legion operated as a renegade army, eerily similar to Mad Mike and his merry men of yesteryear. Unsuspecting Legionnaires were shipped to the Amazon French Guiana to police the frontier against drug smugglers and protect the European Space Agency's primary spaceport. With the new burning curiosity for the Legion, I suddenly snapped and decided to join. I'd been viewing my life through the lens of an anonymous soldier redeeming himself through suffering. I would finally be a hero, a legionnaire, or die trying. The next few months were a blur, mostly sweat, but some tears as well. I now had a motivating fire within me. Although my degree became an afterthought, I hit the books hard, making sure I passed every exam. I checked that box for you, dear dad, 
I said, pointing to the heavens. I wanted nothing to hold me back from my dream. I was afraid of springing this on my family, so I eased them into the idea by announcing that I wished to spend some time in France after graduation. Pa hugged me and muttered the usual, Of course, you're all my boy. But he suspected something was off, and to Ali Mother's fears offered me a job working for him. The family was now pressuring me and there was no way I could let them down. I accepted his offer, but my heart was elsewhere. I used the time to save money, rehabilitate my wrists and my knees, and get into shape of my life. In due course, though I still couldn't bend my wrist, it was strong enough for me to crank out a few push-ups on my fists. When I got to the point that I couldn't continue faking my work duties, I announced that I would join the French Foreign Legion. From the expression on my parents' and siblings' faces, nobody was convinced that I would be back anytime soon. Come on, I pleaded. Why the sad looks? Listen, whatever happens, I'm going to make you all proud. I'll return in a few years with a chest full of medals from missions all over the world. Goodbyes were said, tears were shared, half-half swapped, and I placed a wad of cash in my pocket. I was pumped and primed, yet all while something said to me, Alex, don't get on that plane. Looking out of the window, I didn't want to miss a second of my beloved continent passing below me. From the tip of the Cape to the Atlas Mountains of North Africa, in nearly every expanse that passed, legionnaires lay buried in unmarked graves. As we approached Europe, the South African Airways Boeing dipped beneath the clouds, allowing me to see a vast expanse of deep green water, the Etang de Berg, spread out beneath us. Beyond this lagoon, a speck in the distance was the Mediterranean city of Marseille. I grabbed my backpack from the luggage collection area and followed the sauté signs to the exit. Standing nervously in line at the passport control, I watched as a disinterested clerk interrogated a young woman in front of me. I made up a thousand of reasons for coming in on a one-way ticket from Africa. If I admitted that I'd come to kill the enemies of France, would I be given the red carpet or deported on the next flight out? The clerk merely flipped through my passport after scanning it, stamped it and blurted, Next! I now actually wanted to announce that I was joining the Legion. But how many French civilians truly cared about foreigners dying to protect their freedom? We were simply cannon fodder for dirty wars. I stepped out of the airport and breathed in the crisp air, the fresh scent of a new start. I quickly made my way outside and could barely get myself a taxi. A quick lesson on how difficult life was going to be without knowing a lick of French. I was dropped off near the muggy main port. I walked past Fort St. John the medieval keep that until very recently was used to coral would-be legionnaire volunteers heading for training in Algeria. As if taken from the Count of Monte Cristo, recruits slept on stone floors atop a dirty layer of hay. Armed guards loaded them onto transport ships. Many perished en route. Luckily, conditions for volunteers had somewhat improved. Evening approached and I sat at the terrace bistro for a drink of Milky Richard Pastis. I found a cheap hotel nearby and enjoyed my last night of peaceful rest. I primed my bed and emptied my pockets onto the nightstand. My hand trembled as I held my passport, prepared to never see it again. There was no turning back now. This one's for you, Dad, I said. I know you'll be with me for every step of the way. From my open wood shutters, I could make out the street sign at the nearest intersection. Lesion Intrazer Recruitment. I finally heard. Of course. You're my boy.